0: Amen. Well, good morning, Redemption Church. Huge shout-out to to Ben and Darius for putting that video together. That was a, a huge blessing. But uh, this morning, I wanted to ask you a question as we get going. If I, if I were to throw out the word overwhelmed, what comes to your mind? What do you think of? Because... Uh, Easter is overwhelming. This past year has been overwhelming. And we can, we can hear that word and respond, I think, in a couple of different ways. Or rather, maybe a better way to say it is, we can be overwhelmed in different ways at different times. And so this morning, by way of introduction, I've got a couple of pictures I'd like to throw up on the screen to help us maybe think and start to wrap our minds around what it looks like to be overwhelmed. And so let's, let's talk about the one on the left first. This is the Ocoee River in Tennessee. Do I have any whitewater rafting former guides, big fans of it? I am not a fan, and I'll tell you why here in a second. Um, So this is the Ocoee River. This is a a section in the Ocoee River in Tennessee uh, that was used in the Atlanta Olympics for kayakers. And about 14 years ago, my wife and I, we had an infant son, and in an abundance of wisdom... We decided let's leave our brand new baby with the grandparents and let's travel with some of our college friends to Tennessee and let's raft the upper and lower section of the Akoe River. If the Olympians can do it, surely the guy who's never done it, and my wife had done it like once in middle school or something, surely will be fine. Um, and so we gathered up, we got in a van, we went and we camped, and, and, and the day came, we got in the raft, we had our river guide who gave us some tips and some techniques along the way, and uh, we started going down. We were, we were taking the class twos, we were taking the class threes, we were great. And then this is right in the middle of our, our experience, and we come around this bend and our, river, our rafting guide had given us this, this, um, exp- or this he, he told us, if we come to a part and things start to get squirrely and out of control, I'm going to use this phrase. I'm going to say, hit the deck. And if I, if I yell that, your job is to get your paddle in the boat because you signed a waiver. I don't care if you fall out, but I don't want to lose the paddle because we'd have to replace that. And so get your paddle in the boat and then sink down into the boat and I guess prepare to meet Jesus or something because um, things aren't going well. And so we come around this bend and we're preparing for these back to back class fives. This section of the ECOE is called the double suck because it's what it is. Um, and so we come around and we are, he's getting us on the right line to ride through the rapid. And we're not even two the scary part yet. We're not even to the rapids. And I hear him yell out a not good out loud word and then say, hit the dip. And that's all he got out. And our boat dumped and we flipped. And so my wife and I rode through these back-to-back class five rapids without a boat. Like Olympians ain't got nothing on me. I did it without a boat. Um, It's overwhelming. It's terrifying. The water is freezing. The waves are huge, and they just keep coming. They keep crashing over you. The rocks pound you, um, and you, the, the undertow is pulling you down and then pushing you up and then pulling you back down. And, and I, I've said a couple of times, if I lived in Tennessee, I would petition that they should change the name of this, this portion because um, each rapid has a name. This one's called the double suck. I think we should change it to the triple suck because there's a really beautiful shoreline and a beautiful bridge right at this section of the river. And so locals gather on Saturday afternoons with their lawn chairs and their lunches to watch out-of-towners try to kill themselves. And they laugh. And so you're you're getting pulled under the water. You're overwhelmed by the waves. You're getting pounded by the rocks. And as you come up gasping for air and clinging to life, you see an audience just mocking you and high-fiving that, look, they didn't make it. That's awesome. Ha-ha. And then eventually they throw you a rope and drag you, barely clinging to life, to the shore. And then the worst part about the whole experience is you finally recover And your river guide says, get back in the boat. We're only halfway done. I'm like, I don't want, like, I need counseling. I don't need to keep rafting. Like, I need to see my therapist and cry on somebody's shoulder. I'm completely terrified and overwhelmed. And I think when we hear that word overwhelmed, sometimes we can think brokenness. We can think hardship. We can think hurting and pain. And and just, it, it wells up fear and anxiety in us. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by just the brokenness and hardship of life. Let's talk about the other picture. Isn't my wife pretty? That's, that's me and my wife. Uh, she jokes that this is her first husband. Um, and so we, this was about 17 years ago, and that was about 100, I was about 100 pounds heavier. And then since the, that day, I've had a hair relocation program where I've taken it from the top of my head and I've moved it to the bottom of my face. Um, but I, I love this picture. Um, one, because my wife is smoking hot, and she said yes. Um, but this was an overwhelming day for me. This was a beautiful day. If I, When I look at this picture, I'm reminded of, of, of this day and how um, we got married at kind of a bigger church, and so behind that stage, that red curtain, there is... Uh, there's, a, there's like a green room that me and my groomsmen and the officiant for our wedding, we hung out and we played video games all day and we ate food and waited for that moment where I could come up on stage. And I was standing next to my buddy who was performing the ceremony and he'd done a number of weddings and this was the first wedding I'd ever really been a part of. And so he was, as, as we were preparing for my bride to come down the aisle, he's whispering in my ear, don't lock your knees, you might pass out. And so I remember being overwhelmed in that moment. I'm like, okay, I can't lock my knees. But now my legs are starting to hurt, so i got to go up. But don't lock your knees. I don't want to pass out. And so I was like, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, how? And then the doors opened, and my wife started walking down the aisle. And just the overwhelming sense of pride and beauty in this moment that my best friend said yes that I get to do life with her, that we get to go on this adventure together and that we we're gonna get to start this journey of marriage and it was an overwhelming and beautiful day. This is probably next to the Lord, like pulling me out of darkness and into light. This is my favorite day. Like having kids was great, but I don't get the beauty of having kids if she doesn't say yes. And so I love and am overwhelmed when I think of my wedding day. My hope and my prayer for us church family, is that today we would not be overwhelmed by brokenness, but by beauty. That we wouldn't look at the pain and the hardships of life and be overwhelmed, but rather we would look at the beauty of the empty tomb, of what Christ did on the cross, on our, in our place for our sins, and we would be overwhelmed by his love for us. And that's, we've, we've been journeying through the book of Hebrews. But this morning, I want us to, to take a moment and think about it. It's Easter Sunday. And as I've been thinking about Easter this week, I think the beauty of the empty tomb should overwhelm us. And this week, I went back and I read through Matthew, Mark. Luke and John and looked at all the subtle differences of our authors and how they remember different events and how they remember different details in the resurrection, in the empty tomb. And I I really fell in love with John's account. So I'm going to challenge you to go back this week and read John chapter 20 verses 1 to through 18. For time's sake, we're not going to read it, but I just want to kind of tell you the story of the first Easter for just a few few minutes. That on that first Easter, according to John, Mary Magdalene, who Jesus had freed from demonic possession, who she had faithfully followed him, he was her leader, she was she was his friend. Um she wakes up early and she is broken. She is overwhelmed by the events that have transpired over the past few days, that that Jesus is dead, that his body has been buried, and she wakes up in just, I think, a bad spot, and she doesn't know what to do, and so she gathers up some spices, and she goes to the tomb, because in her brokenness, in feeling overwhelmed, she just wants to be by Jesus. So she gets to the tomb and she sees that the stone is rolled away and she didn't expect that. And so she goes back and she grabs Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, and she says, the stone has been rolled away. And Peter and John hear this and they take off running to get to the tomb. One of the things I love about John's account is John is the same John, the disciple, who's writing this story. And so he decides to include the fact that he's a better runner than Peter, that he beats Peter to the tomb. He tells act a couple of times, actually, and he gets to the tomb, but John doesn't want to go into the tomb. Peter, when he eventually catches up, he just bolts right into the tomb. And they find Jesus' burial clothes are laying there. That in fact, Jesus is gone. That the tomb is empty. The grave has been abandoned. That death has been defeated. But they don't know what's going on. So Peter and John go back. I think to inform the other disciples. To let them know. And to kind of try to game plan what in the world is going on. But who really baffles me and who really has caused me to just marvel this week is Mary. Mary stays at the grave. And she weeps. She's not sure what is going on. She's, she doesn't understand yet what God is up to, and so she collapses and she's crying. She thinks Jesus' body has been stolen by somebody, and she's, she's confused, and she's broken, and she's completely overwhelmed. And then we've been studying through the book of Hebrews and we've seen that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, that he came to make purification for sins. And he's, he's done all of that. And this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords, the risen Savior, in her moment of feeling overwhelmed and broken, approaches her and engages her, engages with her in her moment of pain, in her moment of suffering. And he asks her, why are you crying? And again, she doesn't quite get that this is Jesus yet. She doesn't know what's going on. And so she just shares why she's broken, why she's overwhelmed. She thinks Jesus's body has been stolen. She doesn't get it. And then my favorite part of the whole story, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, our God and Savior Jesus looks at Mary and whispers her name. He says, Mary. And as her name comes out of his mouth, She gets it. She sees Jesus, and she jumps up, and she calls him teacher. And if I can use my sanctified imagination, if I can just give you Nate's perspective for a moment, I think that she jumps up, and there's no social distancing. She wraps him in a hug, and Jesus, like our great Savior and big brother, hugs her back, and there's tears, and there's laughing, and there's smiling, and there's so much beauty in this moment, and and what I love about Easter Sunday is that Jesus took Mary's overwhelmed by brokenness and sin, and in, in an instant, with the whisper of her name, he overwhelms her with his love, with his grace, with his presence. My hope this morning, church, is that we would be overwhelmed by the love and presence of our risen King. Because if we fixate on the brokenness of life, the sin in our own lives, I think we respond in a bunch of different ways, and I want to look at three of them very quickly this morning, Um, and then we'll look at what happens when we fix our eyes on Jesus. But if if we came in here this morning and you are focused on your sin, focused on the brokenness of our culture, focused on the problems, I think we can respond in ways that consume us and lead us in a direction we don't want to go. And so the first way that I think if we are overwhelmed by the sin and the brokenness of our world, I think we have to go not to Hebrews, but actually all the way back to the book of Genesis. And we have to look at what happens with our first parents When Adam and Eve, they are put in the garden. Life is good. Everything is good. Everything is perfect. God has given them mission. God has given them purpose. God has given them responsibilities. There's no fracture between them. They have perfect relationship with each other and with God. And then in in a moment, they decide... I don't wanna have to submit to God. I wanna be just like God. And so I'm gonna rebel. I'm gonna reject. I'm gonna choose. I love how we put it back in Redemption Kids, the the I want my own way heart. We see that present in our first parents. They choose their own way. And in an instant, they feel shame. They feel sin. They feel exposed. If Easter is all about God redeeming and restoring, Genesis 3 is the anti-Easter. It is the complete opposite that we are broken, that the cosmos is fractured in that moment. It's the most, it's the saddest chapter in our Bible. And our first parents' response to being overwhelmed by sin, to feeling shame, to feeling separation is to run and hide. And I think the problem when we look at our sin, when we fixate on our sin, when we fixate on the brokenness of our culture is sometimes we can feel overwhelmed and we can just run. We can separate ourselves from God's community. We can separate ourselves from God's word. We can stop going to things like small group or maybe stop coming to church. Maybe we just decide we're gonna stream online instead because I don't really wanna be around people. I don't really wanna be fully known. I'm just gonna hide. I'm gonna pretend like my sin isn't here. I'm not gonna show my story. I'm not going to let people in. I'm not going to acknowledge that I'm struggling with this. I'm just going to run and hide. And what we see in Genesis 3 is who comes walking in the garden? God. You can't outrun your sin. You can't outrun God. He finds you, He meets you in your sin and in your brokenness. But yet we can try to run from our sin and as we've said throughout our study of the book of Hebrews like we are not the solution we are the problem and if i'm the problem i can't outrun or hide from my problem and my brokenness because i'm the problem i need an outside source i need an outside solution i need outside help and so we can't run from our brokenness. We can't run from our pain. We we can feel overwhelmed and we can be tempted to run. Or if we fast forward just a few chapters later, in Genesis six, we see that, that the cosmos again has been fractured and it has deteriorated so quickly that by Genesis six, everybody is just simply rejecting God's word and God's authority, and all they do is evil all the time. And so we can be overwhelmed by sin and brokenness, and we can run and hide. Or I think if we're focused on our sin, we're focused on our brokenness, and we're overwhelmed by it, we can just decide, I'm going to reject anything that's good and from God, and I'm just going to be completely overwhelmed and give in to sin. And what Romans 1 and 2 tells us is that we start to store up wrath for ourselves in heaven, that God is delaying judgment. And if we look at the rest of Genesis 6, which is always fascinating to me, and we were guilty of this with my with my firstborn, um, that we, we decorate nurseries and like over our cribs, we hang like Noah's Ark pictures. And if you have one, it's okay. But like, this is a tragic story of God's wrath being poured out on humanity. And like we hang it with like a smiling giraffe and a rainbow over our babies. Um, that's just odd to me. Um, But the story is God's wrath is poured out on those who reject and push him away. Who get so overwhelmed by sin that they just fully give in and they stop seeking God and his truth. We can be overwhelmed by sin and, and this can creep in to our lives as well where we start to sound a whole lot more like the world than we do God's word where what we let speak into our lives is maybe a little bit too much Fox News and not enough of Jesus. And we can start to slip into sounding more like the word world than we do like the world. And that can set us up to start to excuse or redefine what God's standard is, what God's holiness is, what's right and what's wrong. We can decide, man, God, you were wrong in this, and I'm just going to ignore that. I'm going to reject that, and I'm going to do what I want to do. This can creep in subtly. This can, this can overwhelm us, and that's why we need to press in, and we need to be overwhelmed, not by sin, but by our Savior. And the, the, the third way that I think, if we're overwhelmed by sin, if we're overwhelmed by the brokenness, and, and, and all of this was the introduction. Aren't you guys excited? We're now getting to the sermon. Um, in Hebrews 10, where our author goes, and what I think is probably the biggest danger for us in the church is that we can be so overwhelmed by sin and brokenness that we set up a checklist of rules, of do's and don'ts, that put us in a position of authority, that help us determine who's in and who's out. And we feel better about ourselves by what we do and what we don't do, rather than being overwhelmed by Jesus. That's where our author goes in Hebrews 10, verse 1 through 4. Here's what our author just said. And what he's consistently been said as we're preaching through the book of Hebrews is that religion and rules, the law cannot do what your heart so desperately needs that your heart was created for community with the Father, that you are the imago Dei, the image bearer of God, and he wants you to draw near and rules, law, legalism, religion cannot do that. That's about you doing better, you deciding the right way and the wrong way rather than running to Jesus. He says that in the law, it's a constant reminder that it can't make you perfect that you want to draw near and the law can't do that. And what I think is fascinating about slipping into this danger of being overwhelmed by our brokenness and deciding, God, I'm going to put you in a box. And in order for you to operate, in order for me to feel better about my sin and my brokenness, I'm going to do these things and I'm in control, is it creates two vastly different responses in people. One of the responses from being overwhelmed and responding in rules and religion is that we can decide, man, this is the box, and I'm just never good enough. I never measure up. I can't. I can't get an A. I can't check all those boxes. I constantly fall short. And so many of us, and even as I look around the room right now, like um, we've been in Loveland eight years. And we moved here with an organization to, to plant a church, and, um, and by God's grace, that didn't work. And now we're here, and it's awesome, and si- it's been six years of just God doing great things. But one of the things I've come to, to learn about Loveland, as I spent the first four and a half years working in the restaurant industry, and I've literally talked to thousands of people, is that Loveland has a church-hurt culture. That as I talk to people, almost everybody's story that is something goes something like this I used to go to church, but, and then you fill in a nightmare. And that's my story. And as I look around the room, like that's a lot of our stories. And by God's grace, the Lord has been using redemption to redeem and heal those deep, church wounds, but so many of us have the story of going, man, I came from a rule-based, a legalistic, a religious background that said, this is what you have to do, and if I stepped outside of those bounds, or if I questioned them in any way, or if I thought a little bit different, man, I got blasted. This can hurt and wound So many people, and the danger of being overwhelmed by our brokenness and deciding this is what you have to look like, is you can create in people a system where they're never good enough and they don't taste the sweetness of grace. Or, what's fascinating to me, is you can create a system where this is what you have to look like, and because you can check all those boxes, now you're like a super Christian that needs a cape. That you're so good at checking off all the boxes that you don't need Jesus anymore. These are the Pharisees. These are the people who feel like, man, I'm 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 at every Bible study. I serve. I give. I come and I set up and I tear down and I know all the right answers and I've read Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and so on. I'm such a super Christian. I don't need to repent. I got nothing to repent of. I checked off all my boxes. You set yourself up as a little mini king or queen over your pathetic little kingdom and you miss out on on Jesus because you think you've got it under control. It's called pride. And it's what got Satan kicked out of heaven. If we're overwhelmed by our brokenness to set up uh, rules we run to religion and we run to the law. He's saying it's never going to work. It is impossible for religion, for laws, for rules, for your sacrifices, your ability, your efforts to do what your soul desperately needs. So then, what's the right response? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. That's where our author goes in verses 5 through 18. He says, consequently, because the rules can't do what you need, he says, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Here's what Jesus just said. Religion can't do what you need. Rules, law won't do what you need. So I came to fulfill the law and lay my life down. By the will of God, he was perfectly obedient. Where you and I get overwhelmed by sin, Jesus was never overwhelmed. He never gave in, he never ran, he never slipped into legalism, but rather he said, I'm gonna perfectly obey and eagerly obey the will of the Father to be the sacrifice, not a sacrifice, the sacrifice for our sin, for our problem. Our response should be when we see Jesus rightly, when we think about Easter morning, to repent, to come back to Jesus. And our author here really wants us to not just see it, but to be overwhelmed by the sufficiency of Christ and his sacrifice, that the beauty of Easter morning is how it wasn't even close. It was an absolute blowout. Let's read um, verses 10 through pretty much the end of this section. He says, by that will, that fact that he laid his life down, he says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. Listen for all of these alls and the sufficiency of Christ. He says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying this, that this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness, of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Did you hear all the alls? All the one time, single time that Jesus came once and for all to overwhelm our sin. I was watching uh, the final four last night and uh, any final four fans or am I by myself? That's okay. Okay, there's a few. The Gonzaga game was insane. And it, like, it was a buzzer beater, half court, three point shot in overtime to win the game. Like my kids were sleeping and I jumped up in my living room and screamed at the TV. It was crazy. It was a nail biter. It was, it was back and forth all game long. Here's what I can do in my brokenness. If I'm overwhelmed by my sin, if I'm focused on that, if I'm not focused on the beauty of the empty tomb and our risen king, I can wrongly look at Jesus' sacrifice and say, man, I look at my sin, and I'm checking things off a list, and I feel like, oh, I'm in danger of out sinning the cross today. Here's what I want us to see this morning, and here's what the Lord has been showing me this week. When it comes to your debt and mine, and Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sin, wasn't even close. It was not a nail biter. Jesus overwhelmingly, extravagantly, abundantly paid for your debt. Once and for all, for all time. I love the comparison that our author here does where it's like there's this priest who every single day has to wake up early and offer more sacrifices. And I just picture this priest who's sweating and stained in blood and his back is sore and his arms are ripped from all of the chopping and and preparing all of the sacrifices. And it's a seven day a week, 15 hour a day job. And it's just this wear you out, burn you out consistent because the people keep sinning. And then you've got Jesus, who overwhelmingly, once and for all, paid for your sin, and it wasn't even close. That's how powerful, that's how great, that's how beautiful our king is on Easter morning. And our response should be to turn and run to him, to not get fixated on our brokenness, but rather run to the beauty of our king. As I think about repentance, because I think the right response to feeling overwhelmed is not to be overwhelmed by broken, but to be overwhelmed by beauty. And as I think about what repentance looks like, I think a lot of times I can think wrongly, that repentance is like, oh man, I got to give up having fun to go to church. And that's not what repentance is. If I go back, I showed you a picture of my wedding day. If I think about two year, almost two years before that, when my wife and I started dating, at that point I had just graduated from high school and I had my friend group and I was living for them, I was living for me, I was 18, I had a little bit of money and almost no responsibility and very little accountability. And so I just kind of was, whatever I wanted to do, I did. If it was something that I could afford, it's what I did. And I was, I was just running after me And my desires. And I was living for time with my boys. I was living for time just doing what I want. And then the Lord opened my eyes to her. And as I got to know her, all of a sudden there was this shift where it was like, man, I could do whatever I want and just go hang out with my idiot high school friends. Or I could come over here and I could spend time with her. I could spend spend my money on myself collecting DVDs, which I never thought that would be an old sentence, but, or... I could come spend time and money on her. Man, that, that felt far more valuable. I could, I could just do whatever I wanted and only think about me or I could consult her and get her wisdom and input. Well, that, that sounded a lot better to me. We've been together 19 years. We've been married almost 17. And I can tell you that there has not been a day where I've looked and gone, man, to turn from hanging out and being an idiot high school boy to running after her was a mistake. I don't feel like I lost. I feel like I won. Repentance is not giving up. It's gaining God. It's not sacrificing. It's winning. It's giving up the brokenness and the sin and saying, Jesus, I get to be overwhelmed by you, by the fact that you care enough to enter into my brokenness and whisper my name. That verse 18 says, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering. I don't have to do anything because Jesus did it so perfectly on that Easter Sunday. So my hope and my prayer for us, this Easter church, is that we would be completely overwhelmed by the love of our risen King and that we would repent and just give up on that and get Jesus. And so I'm going to have the band come on up. And I'm going to give us an opportunity to do this. I'm going to give us an opportunity to repent. Maybe this morning you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ. You've been running or rejecting God and his word. My hope and my prayer is that in this time, you would be overwhelmed by the beauty that you would draw near, just like Peter, just like John, just like Mary. And maybe today, for the first time, you would hear our God and King whisper your name. And you would turn from running and rejecting and receive the relationship that is available because of the empty tomb. Maybe this morning you're here, and you've been following Jesus for a long time. But man, you have set up checklists that this is what you have to look like, this is how how you fit, this is, I'm the king of this kingdom, I decide what is right and wrong. I'm just gonna ask that we spend a few moments just still and quiet. And what I love is verse 15 says that it's the Holy Spirit that bears witness. And so in these moments, the Holy Spirit is gonna start to whisper things in your ear. Don't run from that, receive that. And then just repent, just turn and be overwhelmed by the love of Christ. And then we're gonna get to stand and praise his name. But in these next few moments, Will you just receive and and let the Holy Spirit bear witness and then repent where he's showing you you need to repent? And then I'll pray and we'll continue.